0: Welcome tonight to a very special Five by Fifteen. I couldn't be happier to be being joined tonight, and we all could, by Monty Don, who needs, well, uh, it's a hackneyed phrase, needs very little introduction, but Monty is one of the few people that you can genuinely say that of. He is in Longmeadow, and as I've just been learning, Monty has not left Longmeadow now since about February. But he has managed in the course of this extraordinary year to produce two fantastic books, which I think you saw on the opening slide. One is My Garden World, which I've got beside me. And the other is American Gardens with photographs by Derry Moore. It's too heavy to hold up, but I can tell you it's an absolutely brilliant book. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk Monty and I for the next 20 minutes or so about the first book about my garden world and we're then going to talk about American gardens and show you some of the fantastic images from that book. All the details are on our website and I really encourage you to get them in different ways but lots of similarities, That are extraordinarily good read and very rewarding. We very much hope that you will ask questions. We will allow time at the end. Having interviewed Monty at the Hay Festival in the past, I know how many questions you all want to ask him. And so please put them in our QA. and And in fact, I already see that we have seven before Monty has even opened his mouth. So Monty, good evening and welcome to 5 by 15.
1: Good evening. Hello, Rosie.
0: So tell us what it's been like. Um, what happened when the lockdown happened and you were meant to be filming gardeners world
1: it started uh we were just starting to film gardeners world and, and the way that happens is that that normally uh every week a crew of about seven or eight descends upon the garden for two days and, and more or less camp here they're here from seven in the morning till till six in the evening and then they go and stay in a local uh, uh, hotel and come back and uh, it's very much a sort of collaborative exercise we all know each other we muck in there it's busy really busy with people and um, the (laughs) coronavirus was was brooding on the horizon and and within a few days it became apparent that that we had to change the way we were working because it was we were you know in a small room with store stuff just handing someone bits of kit and one thing another and the BBC just put a block on everything and said right no more crew and that was the last time I saw any crew saw anybody I've worked with at all this year so for about three, four weeks after that, Sarah filmed Gardener's World with me on a little camera, and with Freya, my daughter, and we did the Chelsea programmes with my son Tom and his wife filming, and we were sort of directed by by phone. I mean, it was a, it was as Heath Robinson ish as you could imagine, and it went out to people said, "Ah, oh, marvellous the BBC resources, you know, only the BBC could do this." If they but knew that it was. It was really done by sort of elastic bands and string, but we did it. And then uh, in April, they came and laid five kilometers of cables around the garden and put in two large quarter cabins in our sort of driveway. And all the filming since then has been done. They set up cameras attached to these cables and controlling by remote control inside a porter cabin, and the director is in another porter cabin talking to me by a walkie-talkie, and they can see me, but I can't see them. And every time they want to move the camera, I have to go back indoors, and they come in and move it. So I haven't actually worked with another human being uh, in real life since the first week of March.
0: But it's amazing how consistently the same, the programme has remained, considering what's going on behind the
1: scenes. That's that's huge credit to the production team, actually, because all the editing, for example, has been done like this. It's been done by Zoom and by people at home on laptops or their, their desktop machines, editing the bit, and then it will go to someone else who will stitch it together and someone else who will put the soundtrack on. And uh, it's all been run from people's people's homes. Uh, the team have not worked together at all. And I mean, uh, we could we could blow our own chances. We did the last day's filming yesterday. I think I can honestly say uh, people have been fantastically professional. That's what it is. Just people who are good at their job doing it well.
0: But was it scary at the beginning, suddenly thinking I'm on my own in the
1: garden? No, the not scary. It was interesting. I mean, as, as someone, I've always liked the nuts and bolts of filming. I, I like the process. I, I, w- I want to know about how it's done. So this was something I'd never done before. So it was interesting to think, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make this work? And I did do nine years of studio, live studio work back in the late 80s and 90s. And it was a bit like that. So Because in a studio, in a live studio, they throw to you and you're off. And you have no, no idea really if it's happening or if it's not happening or, or what's going on. Um, and for the, it was a bit like that. So I did have that experience did you know from the beginning how unbelievably important
0: gardening, nature?
1: No, no, that came through. And um, I mean, how huge. Coincidence, well, I've this book. Um, because while this was going, I, I, I was writing right up to the end of May. Uh, and I had I'd written a bit the year before, but then I stopped to, do, to, to go to America and, and do those trips and, and to write the American book. And I came back to it after six months. Mm -hmm. and worked flat out from January through till the end of May. Um, So I was writing about my own personal experience of of the nature and the garden and what it meant to me at a time when completely coincidentally that was becoming a theme. But I think it emerged. I don't think it... It it, it wasn't sort of waiting to leap out. I think that's something that, that slowly emerged. I mean, we asked people to send us films of their gardens. And I think with no disrespect to to the team, it was a way of filling up space. I mean, it was a way of, you know, okay, we're desperate, we can't go filming, we can't send crews out. Why don't we get people to send stuff into us? And that's an extra five minutes of time. Because as you know, it's all about filling the pages all the time. And in the end, something is better than nothing, whatever it is, and you make it work. Uh, And very quickly, I mean, within the first day, we realized that something special was coming through. Because what we were getting was a level of of really personal, um, private stories, which were a shared public experience. And I I don't think in my lifetime there's ever been that same set of opportunities. also, if you remember, April and May were the most glorious months. They were the best spring I can ever remember. And there were no, no noise. There was no traffic. There were no planes. I mean, that, that, took, that was a huge difference. So, and it coincided when birdsong was at its best. So mm-hmm. endlessly, people say, saying, I can hear the birds. You know, I can, I can sit in my garden in the middle of the day and listen to the birds. And that's the first time I've ever been able to do that. And also the whole approach to a garden changed because I think for most people, gardening, however much they love it, is something that they, they fit around the rest of their lives. You know, you, you do it at evenings and weekends and, and you mow the lawn and people come and you tidy up and you you sort of rather resent the fact you can't spend more time. But the relationship is always slightly pressurized and curtailed. For the first time, that went. People could spend all day in the garden if they wanted to. They could, they could sort of, And not do it because not one day because they know that they could do it the next day. And that freedom of choice, the relationship of time and slowness, and and just letting it happen was a brand new experience. And so it became (laughs) a very quickly that that all these things were coming in on these little films filmed on the phone. I mean, that's another thing, technology. Five years ago, even there wasn't the technology to do that.
0: They were very touching, the films. I mean, I could have watched them endlessly for hours. I and mean, I, I will always remember the man in the attic with all the the, guard, the house plots I mean, yeah. in that extraordinary jungle he created and wonderful scenes of people's children learning how to grow things and the pride in that.
1: I, I, think, that was, I, mean, <laughs> I think that was very clear. And also, it was a marvellous film of somebody who was 96 and saying, I'm doing it like this, and if people don't like it, I don't care because I'm 96 I can do whatever I like. And there was this sense that I think what came through in that was at a time when it was anxious, there were people, you know, there was real death and real suffering and and real fear. There was a sense of joy and engagement and life and hope coming through from these little films, whether it was from small children or for people who are too old to be worried about this sort of thing you know it's uh and I think for most of us who are in the middle of that uh you've got yes that's the right attitude that's exactly how we should be living and did it change the way you
0: wrote wrote my my world the world the fact that the fact that finishing, it, finishing it in the pandemic the pandemic did it make did it make it urgent urgent
1: no I think I'd like to say, I'd say because um you know, as though I was responding to it. But the truth is, by the time the pandemic came around, I was so embedded in the book. I mean, books invariably uh, take, uh, you, take you over. There is always a stage in a book when it becomes a compulsion and is the single dominant thing in your life. And it's not always a pleasant thing That I mean, it's, it's it's you know the thing you last think about when you go to sleep. It's the thing you first think about when you wake up. You're talking to someone and really you're thinking about the book and uh i had reached that stage by about february and to be honest i was sort of in my own little world when i was writing and often am i mean i i write in a very hermetic way because but it, it's 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 something that that i it doesn't feel like it engages with the outside world at all when i'm actually doing it and for me books are alive when I'm writing them. Once I've finished them, they die a certain death for me. Uh, and then they go to a publisher and a publisher takes them. And then they go to the, when that's finished, they go out into the world and the world takes it. But, the, but take is the operative world. I've lost something at that point. Uh, I've not shared it, which is, and I'm not suggesting me it, I don't want to share it, but the actual process of writing is incredibly intense and personal and private and insular. Um, And I don't want any input from anyone and I don't really want to connect with anyone.
0: So, many, many things I think are completely wonderful about your book, but I think overall what is extraordinary is that when you grow up in this country, or indeed maybe when you're grown up, you sort of think that wildlife exists in films about Africa or that interesting wildlife, that's where it is and that we don't really have it. And that what you get in your book is the sense that it's absolutely under our noses. And we have incredible, I mean, to me, it felt like what a great disregard. I learned so many things like about a vole's heartbeat or why mistletoe grows where it does I mean. Suddenly you bring the stuff that's all around us and that we don't think about very much. You brought it into this extraordinary focus
1: well, thank you, because that's exactly what I was trying to do. Um, that exactly explains the reason for the book. I, it was partly, and as I say in, in the introduction of the book, this has been something that's been rumbling away for about 60 years. Um, and I've, I've always felt an, a very sort of immediate engagement with the wildlife of my little insular world. And I realise as I'm talking, I increasingly look about so I live in this little bubble. I don't completely, but... Um, And it does strike me that, in a way, the fact that the films that come out, particularly of the NHU, which is one of the great wonders of the BBC, and, uh, and the fact they're so good and so extraordinary, is that we have, over the last 20 years, begun to think of wildlife, as you say, as coming from Africa or the Himalayas or the Antarctic or or the the middle of the jungle. And it's the very rare and the very unusual. And and in order to see it, you go on heroic journeys and you camp out for six weeks with ants eating you and all that sort of thing. And I think that in a way that disconnects us from wildlife. We admire it, we love it, but actually we're admiring the filming and the films. And it's, it's very telling that the BBC, for example, has started to add these 10 minutes of how we made this film. In other words, it's about the filming, not about the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know people at the NHU and I have nothing but respect and admiration for them. They are incredible and they're wonderful and I love them. But it, we do need to notice what's on our doorstep. And A, because it's so rich, there's so much. Uh, although I was also very aware the combination of my garden here and our little farm in the Black Mountains is especially rich and especially diverse. And therefore, I had lots of material to write about. The book was 40,000 words longer. And the publisher said, we just, yeah, I'm afraid, sorry, we've got a cut. You can do it or we will. But it just, you know, it, so I mean, there's almost a second volume. To be done. Well, I,
0: would, I would definitely
1: have had words more. I mean, I, uh, well, I, the, I think it's all to do, as you know, with, with costing pages and, and all that sort of thing. But, but just, I think the a... other point, which I just wanted to make, was that I do feel very strongly that uh, habitat loss, species loss, and climate change are. Uh, are problems that that are not being solved top-down. Politicians are not engaging with this because they don't know how to, and I have some sympathy for that, and that we need to engage people bottom-up. We need to get people engaged on a very, very local level, and the best place to start to do that is on your doorstep in your garden and if you become aware of the wildlife in your garden and the effect of climate on that and, and the fact that you're not seeing hedgehogs or you're not seeing dragonflies or the starlings that you saw absolutely everywhere when you were a child you haven't seen for two years or, or whatever it might be, then it becomes meaningful because it's personal. Mm. It's about you and your life and your back garden. And and I think that that by engaging people directly like that, then things can happen, and, and then become, if you constantly say, you know, the the Antarctic is melting, or, or we're burning down the rainforest, it doesn't actually mean very much on a day-to-day level. So, so there was a kind of polemic involved.
0: So, sorry, what what's the way that we do engage? <coughs> what's the way that we do engage people in the best way? Because. As I say, I now feel infinitely more engaged with the hedgerows, having read your book.
1: Mm. <coughs> Sorry.
0: What, how do we do it?
1: Well, I think, I mean, as a gardener, um, there, are, there are simple devices and means, which is plant more hedges, let your grass grow longer, make some water, any water will do, as long as it's, it's not, preferably not moving. Um, because still water attracts tracks and is much better habitat for wildlife than moving water. Um, provide cover. Cover is the magic thing. Don't be too tidy. You know, bare soil is not great. Uh, and if, you know, cover it with beautiful plants. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be ugly. In fact, it shouldn't be ugly. There's no, no reason for that. But, but let, if not all your lawn, let some of your lawn grow long um, and, and make it beautiful at the same time. And, uh, and I think that very simple and I think enjoyable aspects of horticulture will certainly help the wildlife and, and natural life in your garden. And by the same token, help your garden because then you'll have predators or eat your slugs and your aphids and all that sort of thing. I think as a society, um, the great enemy is tidiness, tidiness and uniformity. You want diversity is the key thing, diversity of species. It's far better to have two things of, of 60 different species than 60 things of two different species. And I mean, clearly those numbers are absurd, but, but the point is there. It's, And I think that's one of the points of the book, too, is actually when you start to add up what you can see, it's a lot. I mean, I wrote down, when I started the book, I wrote down everything I thought I could write about. And I got to about 400 things quite quickly. Um, if you start to think about it, and you think, well, and, and of course, I'm not a great naturalist. I mean, I'm an interested naturalist, but I'm, not, you know, it's not my, my training or my job. So I had to discover quite a lot in order to write about it. And of course, what you end up doing when you're writing a book like that is, you think, oh, I'll just look that up about Robbins. Three books later, you, you know, you've spent four days reading about Robbins, uh, well, and I then think- you can write a paragraph.
0: I obviously um, very much checked out what was happening in October in my garden year and I just tell us about the the wrens and their nighttime huddling because I thought that was quite yes I mean
1: like, that that what wrens will do is as the frost comes in as they get colder is they will f- they will cram themselves into spaces either gaps in trees or into I mean bird boxes I uh, forget now but I think something like 70 were counted in one bird box all crammed in next to their little bodies giving off heat um I've actually found three wrens inside the bell the, the brass bell outside our back door they were tucked in up underneath it uh, clinging to it so yeah that, that's that little habit but that's always at night and you would never see that there are all kinds of things going on that unless you either knew about it or looked for it, you would never see or know.
0: And one thing that runs through your book and indeed runs through the American book as well is this sense of tension between the gardener and nature and the invasive species and nature. And mm. what about control of nature? I mean, obviously we have tried to control nature to such an extent that we have, Depleted soils and lost biodiversity, and made an incredible mess of it. But all of us, the moment we put a seed in the ground, or we cut a lawn, or, or whatever we do, we are we are doing something with the natural world. And I I was struck by how often you write about the trade that you make between the slug and the snail and the hosta and the plant, and how we how we create that tightrope. Where do where do we do it?
1: Well, I I don't think there's any. Good or accurate answer to that, but the, the, the whole point is, is really the key to it, which is that a garden, by definition, is an artificial, man-made product. I, when I was I was filming all over the world, and everywhere I went, I had this stock question I asked people: "What is a garden?" And I, mm-hmm. and it was, I, did, I really was interested in in how different nationalities interpreted that, uh, rather mm-hmm. than looking for an absolute answer. But the best absolute answer I had to that question was from a man called Juan Grim in Chile, he was a landscape designer. And he thought about it and said, when a tree falls down in a forest, it creates a glade. Mm-hmm. If somebody comes along and cuts a circle the same size as that glade in a forest, it's a garden. So when you deliberately impose something on the natural world or take it, or deliberately take it away in order to create an effect, you are immediately, um, disordering nature, you're intervening and and disrupting. And there is a knock on effect to that. So that there is no sort of, there is no way around that conflict. If you make a garden, if you you want to encourage wildlife, just do nothing. That's by far the best thing you can do is just leave it alone and it will sort itself out. Um, But of course, We're on an evolutionary basis as regards gardens. If you, if you think that, that European gardens really took off in the 17th century, they became something. And it was all about controlling nature in every possible way of, of keeping it at bay. And ever since then, we've, we've had a sort of ambiguous relationship with it, and it's evolved. Um, and so I think that, that we, can, we tread lightly, but we do tread. We squash, we flatten, and, and, and you accept that. And you go with it and you try and make amends. You you know, you you mow your grass, but you have a bit of long grass to make up for it. You you, um, do all these bits and pieces. The other thing that's part of that tension, which is implicit in your question, is that we create a relationship with our natural world, and I use the word our advisedly, which is incredibly romantic and sentimental, Mm -hmm. um, not to say kitsch whereas at the same time in that world it is every bit as violent and as vicious and voracious as anywhere on the planet be it in the you know in, in africa or, 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 or in the jungle or whatever and that we we have very very confused ideas about that you know we have things that we accept things we don't accept um we we and I, I touch upon this a bit, you know, and obviously the most obvious example of that is fox hunting or, or shooting or something like that. But it's it's even more sort of slugs we want to kill. Everybody wants to know how to get rid of slugs. But if you said, OK, if a deer came in the garden, would you like to shoot that between the eyes and kill that? You know, what's the difference? At what point do we decide on the hierarchy of what is acceptable and what is not? Um, and and it's, there is no rhyme or reason to it. There's no logic to it. I mean, it's, it's other than the obvious fluffy bunny aspect to it. But writing the book increasingly, I can, again and again, I came up against this.
0: Yeah, no, it does come up everywhere. I was very, you know, taken by, because we've had a very nice rat all year, which I've fed yeah. and it's got a family. But then someone pointed out to me that the, the reason the ducklings were getting eaten was because of the rat. So yeah. You yeah. Then, I then caught one rat and killed it. And yeah. then I, I can't do this anymore. So we have just two grown up ducks and the family of rats living next door. And, but you're right, you can't, you can't sort of answer
1: these questions.
0: No. But we do want to interfere.
1: Well, people, I think, I think particularly um, in the last 25, 30 years, we do try and answer those questions. And I think we mainly answer them wrong and a completely sort of illogical and entirely emotionally led basis. Um, and we make up rules as we go along about it, uh, and and they're just and obviously that's a reflection of urbanity and, and and the way that we are moving away from the countryside and away from contact with nature. You know, little things like I can have a very vivid image of, of a boy, of my father, walking across the frosty lawn with two dead geese draped over his arm that he had killed, and then have, joining my mother and sister in the garage which where there were electric heaters to keep the bodies warm plucking them yes. and so we plucked the geese and 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 one we ate for our Christmas dinner and one went to someone else but, but these were geese that I the day before I'd been feeding and, and and looking after and then we ate them and we ate them with relish I mean there was never at a point at which I or anyone in my family said oh dear I don't think I can do this now I'm not saying that that we shouldn't have said that, that would have been fine, but it was just part of life. It wasn't seen as an abnormal thing. Whereas I think now asking a six year old to go and pluck his Christmas dinner would be seen as extraordinary, if not slightly perverse.
0: I think that's right. Well, I think, okay, on that note, um, let's move on to your other book about um, my garden. Um, We've talked about my garden. Well, let's go on to American gardens. and. You, you you said that question, you know, um, you asked that, you got an answer to what's a garden. I mean, what on earth is an American garden? Before we come to the first slide, yeah. can you answer that? Because I've never seen such a very much. But again, well, that, that strong feeling of conquering yeah, in a it, lot of the
1: gardens you go to. I did ask that question of everybody I went to in America. What is an American garden? And within about sort of three days, I realized that A, I wasn't gonna get an answer and B, there isn't an answer. There is no such thing as an American garden. There are lots of of different aspects of America you see in gardens. But I think that in a way that is very American because I mean, I've been to America lots of times but I haven't really traveled around America. I've been to New York, I've been to Miami, I've been to LA, but just there and then not traveled and come home. and. These three trips, for the first time, I traveled extensively and it's a terrible sort of cliche to even mention it, but the truth is, the thing that impresses you more than this is just how simply enormous America is. It's vast and its mountains are vast, its deserts are vast, its prairies are vast, its lakes are bigger than our seas and so on and so forth. So that the bigness of America and its variety is absolutely central and I think that that the fact that that the, all these different gardens very different and, and sometimes sort of at odds with each other is very American I mean okay. we can talk more about, about there are particular things which I thought were terribly interesting but but generally there is no such thing as an American garden and the other thing which comes came across very quickly is that America is very young and it's evolving, it's making itself up. And, you know, we could all watch from outside with horror at what's going on in America at the moment, but that's part of its evolution. And, and that happens in gardens too. It's, it's 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 happening fast and it's interesting and all kinds of great things are going on, but they're changing as we speak.
0: Okay, well, let's see the first um, garden out of many that we could have chosen. Right. This is the Lurie Garden in Chicago, yeah. and it's a garden right in the middle of the city, as you can see with the um, with the skyscraper. Well, a small skyscraper. Why did you Why did you pick this one?
1: Well, I'm so glad I did because I think it is absolutely fantastic, and this picture is just a small part of it. Um, it's because it, of what we we call prairie planting, although. Um, it's a version of the prairie. This idea of creating a garden, which is essentially an open field, although it's very carefully divided up, uh, and planted in great drifts using the vernacular of of, mean, You can see the coneflowers, the Rebecchias and the uh, uh, echinaceas that belong and originate from the American prairies. And it's right in the middle of Chicago, it's on the edge of the waterfront as as part of this larger park. So it is surrounded, it's ringed on as a a, a horseshoe by large skyscrapers. So this relationship between the American city and Chicago, I mean, I don't know Chicago, but it was terribly exciting to go there. Mm. And then this, the open Prairie as a garden. Um, And it was built on a site that used to be a railway depot. And actually, the Lurie Garden, which is about five acres, is a roof garden because there's a multi-story car park underneath it. I mean, you know, immediately we're into extraordinary feats and size and 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 this incredible thing about America. Whatever you think about America, the excitement of if you want to do it, it can be done. But and have you'll... they
0: planted it with prairie grass? Is that what you?
1: Yes, would have I mean the, the the nature of prairie planting and, and it tends to be used what's called matrix planting is you take certain key plants which tend to be grasses uh and they will be grasses from the prairie whereas uh, you know different parts of the world use different grasses and they repeat throughout and then you have other plants that work through that in drifts and in fact the day after we filmed there and went there i flew to um kansas and i went to a little little town about Sixty miles outside Kansas, where there was a marvelous uh, prairie garden, which was made out of real prairie, uh, where you have two hundred acre fields of these, mm-hmm. these flowers and grasses growing, which are six foot tall. They're not little low borders like we think. They're enormous. I mean, it's, 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 it's the scale is just incredible. But most of the prairie has disappeared. I mean, the vast majority of has disappeared. So it's there's a kind of not irony because that's the wrong word. There is as i said it's evolution they we've ripped up the prairie we've destroyed the the buffalo that they did we've <laughs> dealt with the indigenous people got rid of them we have plowed up the prairie now we're making gardens to remind ourselves of the prairie and it's rather like the british making cottage gardens to remind ourselves of cottages you know or the countryside little and uh, the other uh, aspect which which i found interesting is is that it's not made by an american it's made by a dutchman Uh, and Pete Alder, who is now regarded in America as as a rock god. I mean, he is fated much more than any gardener is in Britain. Uh, And this was his first American commission. And it took this idea of being open to outsiders, of immigrants coming in and changing things. It's all part of the American dream. So I think that on many levels, it's beautiful, it's very well looked after, it's, it's open to the public, so, so lots of people visit it and walk through it and it's a park and go on their way to work and what have you. It's, it was designed by a, a Dutchman coming in for the first time. It, it reminds you of what America has destroyed, which is so much part of modern recreation and life. And yet it's, and it's surrounded by this extraordinary cityscape. It's amazing garden.
0: Well, thank you. Let's go on to the next one, which, in a way, which actually couldn't be more different—the uh, the Kaufman House. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I completely <laughs> love this photograph of Derry Moore's. It's absolutely yeah. wonderful. He is a terrific photographer, isn't he?
1: He's a wonderful photographer, yeah. and we—this is—we I think our fourth book together. We, We've—and I love traveling with him because he is. Um, we have such a different way of looking at things so that it's always challenging and always refreshing to to work with someone, you know, who's not seeing things quite the same way as you. Um, The whole point about this picture is this house um, was designed by um, Norman, I always forget his name, um, in 1947. And it was designed, Kaufman owned Falling Water, which was Frank Lloyd Wright House. So he had two sort of iconic buildings. And this really epitomizes the Californian dream. It's immediately after the war. And I remember my mother, I mean, it was before I was born, but I remember my mother saying that 1947 was the worst year of her life. And it was the hardest, lowest point of the war because the war was over. There was nothing to fight for. Rationing was much worse. The weather was unspeakable. Uh, No money, no fuel no food to speak of, Uh, everyone exhausted by the war. And that was life in Britain. And at the same time, this was being built. Mm -hmm. And the thought of having a swimming pool and also the way that the house and the outside completely entwined, great big windows, doors open, steps leading in the same material leading up from the pool into the house, the mountains behind, the sun shining, This was the most idyllic uh, prospect for anybody from Europe looking in and uh, designed again by a European, by an Austrian. You know, America, California, the place where dreams could become reality. And this was the essential Californian 20th century dream. It's very, very movie star, isn't it? Yeah. Like still is. It still is. I mean it's still you know when i went there um it it's it still feels glamorous and and uh, and wonderful
0: yeah um okay on to the next one which is not really a garden but i just was so intrigued by what you wrote about the redwoods actually and the way they grow and why they grow where they grow um yeah, well, these are the coast- Have it in the book of American gardens, but it isn't a garden, is it?
1: No, and but I mean, I don't. I've never minded that. I mean, I, I I've never really. Um, I've, as you know, I've done a lot of travelling, and, and I always do try and see landscape because, to me, the relationship between landscape and gardens tells you as much about gardens as anything else. And I'd always wanted to see these. These are the coastal redwoods. And they're only grown on a very thin strip, about six miles wide, along the Pacific Coast, um, south of San Francisco, and going up by San Francisco, up a little bit up into Oregon, north of, of San Francisco. And the reason why they grow there is because they depend upon the survival on sea mist. Mm. The mist comes in from the sea, and it and it it dissipates after about six miles but there's just enough for the the mist to land on the foliage and it absorbs water through them because this is an incredibly dry place in summer and they couldn't possibly exist without the sea mist so they they found this very very specific niche in evolutionary terms and they are the tallest gro- living things on this planet but not the biggest because the The redwoods up in the Sierra Nevada have got more bulk, but these are the tallest growing 300 foot plus tall. And they grow very close together. It's not as though they're great big oaks spread out. You go in and it's it's like these columns, these huge columns, wherever you go. And it's a deeply spiritual experience. It's the only way to describe it because it's quiet there aren't very many birds or animals there because they're very, very acidic. And so not much else can live. And that's how, again, how they've evolved to destroy all competition. They they dominate wherever they are. And it's quiet. You can't see the sky because it's too high up. And you, you just have this sense very profoundly of something that is bigger and older and wiser than you and but they're and still growing they're still growing uh, they actually grow quite fast i mean the the oldest ones are about two thousand years old And what they do is they grow quite quickly for the first few hundred years and then rather like you trees they slow down um so what they, they get up high so they can get the mist they push on up to about 100 foot quickly and then slow down um but There are more grain. They were cut down rather like the prairies in enormous quantities. And and one of the reasons why America is potentially on a kind of environmental ecological crisis is because there was no hint of crisis Mm. until very recently. There were so many redwoods, They were so big. They had so much of everything that there was no sense of anything running out. And now it's just beginning to happen. Now, being America, they brilliantly look after them. I mean, they, they, American, you know, when Americans do things well, they do them really well. And, and I have nothing but admiration for the way that they, they conserve them and look after them and, and, and manage the whole operation. Um, you know, we, any idea that we, you know, we're ahead of the game on that is not true. What we are ahead of the game is we have lost much more. So we are aware of how precarious things are. The average American isn't and, and should
0: be. Have they not become much more aware since, say, the fires in California?
1: Californians have. Really yeah. hmm? I think that I think that because the country is so big, it's quite hard for someone living in Maine or, or Florida to really relate to what's happening in California, in the same way we talked earlier about someone. In, in Swindon with a back garden relating directly to what's happening to snow leopards in, in the Himalayas. And it is that sort of distance we're talking about. Um, whereas when it's your backyard that's burning down, then by goodness, you're aware of it. Um, so I think one of the reasons why gardens in America haven't really taken off generally is because there seems to be so much wilderness. You can go out into the mountains. You can go out into the prairies that you don't need anything from your garden to supply that uh it's such a big thing that it uses up all that aspect of your life and until they realize actually it's going and we've got it's got to become exactly like the natural world thing it's ours and we've got to look after it rather than it's america's and it's it's you know the states it's got to be made personal
0: so we're going to do going to go and look at one more garden before we come to the questions and we've got lots and I'll start looking at this, okay. this garden which is called Vizcaya which is in Miami is yeah. just as over the top <laughs> and extraordinary as, as you could get i mean this shot on its own is is well quite weird
1: quite strange. it's it's very weird and it's uh, it's one of those things that uh, I love About America. I absolutely love it because this, you know, is a house built uh, in Miami, now looking across to modern uh, Miami, but back then sort of well away uh, in a more remote part. And you were meant to approach by sea. So it's, it's like coming to Venice. Uh, that's, it looks like a stone barge where you would alight and, and then a little boat would bring you across um, to the water. The whole thing is built in a swamp. It was technically very difficult, enormously expensive, uh, and could much more easily have been built on higher ground, but that wasn't what they wanted, uh, and built by an industrial millionaire, millionaire whose family had, had more or less invented the combine harvester, uh, and therefore he had inherited limitless money by modern standards, traveled in Italy and wanted to build an Italian palazzo in Miami. And if you want to build an Italian palazzo in Miami, you've got limitless money, go to it. And the house, he bought great chunks of Italy to, to decorate the house, you know, rooms from the Vatican, rooms from, from villas. And, you know, he wanted a fountain in the garden, so he went to a Tuscan village and just bought the fountain square, you know, bought the square and the stone and the fountain and shipped it over. Uh, rather like the guy who bought London Bridge, the same mentality. And so this is American brashness, um, the incredible sort of can do engineering spirit. It's, you could see it as being a bit tacky, but actually I like it for its exuberance, for the fact that it's not trying to hide the fact that it's fake. It's it's, it's not a Renaissance Italian video. Yeah? It's, it's a copy. And it's a good one. Uh, and I think that that lack of self-consciousness has enabled them to enjoy creating things on a scale that that Europeans can't really do. It's as though we're too inhibited. You know, we we can't. It's uh, and bearing in mind that this was of its time. This is um, I need to remind myself of the dates. This is sort of before the First World War, just just at the beginning. I need to look, look back up. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 what in nineteen fourteen and nineteen twenty three. It took a thousand people to make it um and this was really the peak of american wealth it's when the the carnegies and the Rockefellers and people have made the money at the end of the 19th century and then the offspring were spending it and um, it was
0: built on a, a mangrove swamp
1: isn't yeah it? To yeah a swamp. More that's, difficult. That's drain it and and also to his credit he wanted to not, he wanted to use local materials. He wanted to use, to be true to the swamp. He didn't want to destroy it. He wanted to incorporate into it. And and the original setup at Vizcaya um, had a farm. It had a village for employees. It had a huge vegetable garden. It was completely self-sufficient in Florida, uh, in that climate. And he he, he was only there a few years, and then he died.
0: Yes, well, that's very sad. Do you think a garden like that has any influence on American gardeners, or do you think it's just a complete one? No,
1: I don't actually. I don't. I think that it's it's a one. It's a show. I think that's the other thing to remember about America. They love a show, performance, showtime, and and a lot of the bigger gardens are are, are a performance. They're a show, and I think the most telling aspect of American gardens um, is actually their suburban gardens with the lawns going down to the street, which, which mm-hmm. to us looks so odd, having no hedges or fences or, or demarcation of territory. And that was explained to me that there was a book published in um, the early years of the 20th century, telling people how to behave as good citizens, particularly in the suburbs and in, in the edge of towns, because what one has to realize is that as America was settled and the frontiers were broken, and people were coming in from all over the world. It was a complete hodgepodge, and melting pot. No one quite knew who, who, where people came from, what languages they spoke, um, what their background was, how they had earned their money. And that above all, respectability within the context of your neighborhood mm-hmm. was really important. Much more important than privacy. And so that by having an open lawn down to the street, you were saying, I'm open, I'm hiding nothing, I'm one of you, I'm one of us. And actually, even to this day, there are laws prohibiting fences too close to the sidewalk. You know, you That's can't really nice. And so that still, it's really important that people declare themselves as good citizens from the facade of their houses and buildings in the suburbs. It actually begins to make sense when you see it like that. Mm,
0: like it. Okay, I'm going to come to some questions because we've got lots. We've um, got one from someone with the sublime name of Sean Alpine Crabtree, which I assume is some kind of brilliant pseudonym, but it's very good. He's, um, he says, is there a part of Long Meadow that represents you more closely than any other?
1: It's a very good question. Um, Well, in a sense, uh, the Jewel Garden, because it's so connected to the jewellery business that Sarah and I had and and sort of goes back to 1981 when we started it um, and was involved. There was a lot of, um, you know, it was a big chunk of our lives and quite a dramatic chunk of that. And so that's very personal. Um, But in some ways, I'd say the orchard with the fields around it. Um, but it's a good question because I've never, never really thought of it. You could, because it's so much mine and, 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 you know, I've planted everything and Sarah and I have done everything. I, I feel the whole thing as a construct. But I would say by the same token, that if I was to do it again tomorrow, I'd do it completely differently. It doesn't feel, you know, what, what you're seeing is not the sort of ultimate picture of me. It was something that I made and did. And I'm vaguely making, but if I was to do it again, I wouldn't do it the same. I'm not no, quite sure how I'd do it, but it would be different because so I'm doing it. You know.
0: Stephen Rogers asks: Have you got a definitive, clear, and fixed end vision for Long Meadow, or is I it did. very
1: fluid? No, I, I, I drew it up. There is, I, 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 I've got. I spent the best part of a year designing it, um, and I still have rolls and rolls and rolls of drawings. Uh, so that the structure, the basic hedging hedges and plans and shapes uh, were all planned and measured and uh, marked out and then planted accordingly. we've added to it uh, but as much as anything else because of the demands of television, this sort of insatiable appetite for new material. so we've that that has driven it quite a lot um, but no I mean to me, the garden is like a sort of I, mean, I don't want to be pretentious about it, but it's like a painting. You, there's only a limit to how much you can go on working a painting. You know, you do it and then you move on. I I people will be surprised at how unemotionally attached I am to it now. I am attached to it emotionally, but I could I'd be very I wouldn't I wouldn't mourn selling it and making another God. It's interesting, so is, uh, is I
0: that would, what you're doing at, at the vision, at the farm? Yes, I mean, it's,
1: yeah, uh, it's the, I'm making another garden there, at the farm, um, and have been for the last 15 years, which is completely different, I mean, as different as a garden could be, um, and I enjoy that uh, as much, it's rather like writing, the making of a garden, is by far the best bit of it to me. Mm-hmm. Having made it, of course, it, you have to look after it, and it changes. It changes all the time. But naturally, all gardens do. But that's not the exciting bit. I never sit in the garden and think, wow, I've done this. <laughs> I just, it's there, and we move on, and I deal with what's happening today. Um, I'm, I'm getting, it, time is running out, but I could feel I could easily tackle another big project. And we be very the garden,
0: happy. The garden at the farm is much more defined by the landscape, isn't yes, it? Yeah, the it, garden at we,
1: we have streams and woods, and and it's very steep. And we have carved out um, areas that are flatter areas, but much smaller. I mean, the the flatter areas are tiny. Um, I mean, really, I would say the total flat area is a quarter the size of the garden here. Um, So the rest of it is much wilder. But, you know, for example, we've now made five acres of wildflower meadow, which we've made from scratch. I mean, they were really overgrazed, rough bits of ground, and we've Mm -hmm. developed those very carefully. Um, I've planted thousands of trees. I've I've, uh, cleared streams and and, uh, I've cleared hillsides and and that sort of thing. So the work is very different. It's on a bigger scale. It's, it's, It's sort of chainsaws and tractors as much as it is, Hose and trowels and what what do you want to get to at the
0: end because in a way this is also in nature like it. or is it no, not
1: I don't, I don't think like getting to in the end i think where we are i've, I've always on the farm seen it i mean i don't know if people are, are familiar with the whole concept of the fair me which was this idea of of a farm that was designed to be a sort of you walked around it admiring different views so there are walks in the farm distinct roots that I keep open and clear um, where there are views. But the views, you wouldn't, it's not a garden. I mean, there are views of the landscape. but then, And I will prune trees so that you, it shapes those views. And in fact, there's as much gardening going on, but I hope you're not noticing it. You shouldn't really see. And we've made tracks. You know, We've used JCBs and, and we've moved stone and we've made tracks and things. But I hope they look as though they've always been there. It, it, it's not a It's a very, very naturalistic thing. OK, it's a very
0: nice question here from 10 year old George Adderley, who wants to know what age you started
1: gardening at. Well, I started gardening when I was seven. So by the time I was your age, I was an old lag. but I didn't really enjoy it until I was about 17 or 18, because my mother, who was very strict about these things, made me and my two brothers garden every day. And we had to do it as part of our household chores. So for about 10 years, I saw it in the same spirit as I saw chopping wood or washing up or, or splitting logs or something like that. It was just jobs I had to do and when they were done, I could go.
0: Okay, so Steffi has said, you've spoken and written before about the importance of the garden and nature for all our mental health, which I agree with. The pandemic has really highlighted this to a wider public who might not have experienced any mental health problems before. How do you think we can
1: keep the importance of this
0: going beyond the pandemic
1: well i 'm glad you've raised it because it is very important, and it was important long before the pandemic raised it be head and I think um, certainly there is there are all kinds of things going on in that field, and i 'm involved in some of them um, Lots of people are working on this it 's becoming acknowledged and recognized as being really important, and our gardens and our relationship with the natural world and and uh with mental health. So there is good work being done on it. Uh, and obviously, there's a lot more we need to do. One of the ironies about this is that most people now will agree that gardening, <laughs> gardens, and being outside is good for our mental health and our well being. But there's been very little research on it. I mean, a fraction of the research that it has on other things. Uh, actually, how? Why? Because medically and, and, and scientifically, it's not quite good enough to say, oh, it makes you feel good. You know, you need you need to work out what's going on, what's going on in the brain. Uh, and, and a lot of this work, the work that has been done, is fascinating. Because, for example, there's real evidence that just breathing in soil, the smell of soil, actually feeds you bacteria that that improves, improves serotonin levels. Touching soil, the bacteria we get from soil goes to our gut which then improves the the way that we feel. So it's not an airy-fairy thing. It's actually, there's a lot of physiology as well as psychology going on. So that work is taking place. Um, The COVID has come along at a very bad time because Oxford University is is undertaking a big project. And obviously that's been made much, almost impossible to pursue over the last year. Um, So all I would say is that it's something that it's been taken very seriously. We need to take it very seriously. And I'm trying to be involved in as much as I can, or people want me to be.
0: Thank you. Now we're really coming up to the end of the time. And i the, the one thing, of course, we haven't mentioned all through this is dogs. Yes. Um, I've got two snuffling around in the background and I know can see that you are
1: dogless one, at the moment. Yeah. Well, I've um, got a dog in the background too. You've
0: got who? You've got Nelly?
1: I've or... got, i just seen, no, Nelly's not there. I've got this one, hang on, I'm going to come back. Okay. Ah. Uh,
0: come on, come, on, come on, on, go and be on camera. I have. We had that question. One, Patty. We had that uh, question from Dennis Muirhead. Actually, where are your dogs? Well, um, here's
1: one, and she was asleep, so she's very cross to be woken up. Um, and uh, um, Ellie is lying um, just outside, and of course, Nigel, my dog, died during lockdown. I he
0: know.
1: Died. So sad. Um, and it was very sad. But to be honest, I now just think about him with pleasure. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I'm, I, I don't grieve for him at all now. I, I just think how great it was, you know, it was an extraordinary thing to have a dog that was loved by millions. How odd is that and how wonderful. And, you know, I remember uh, getting on a plane in the Midwest last year and, I, and the chap took my ticket, as you know, I was going back to but and I said, hey, where's your dog? I'm <laughs> just thinking, how does he know about Nigel? And he watched it on some sort of YouTube thing or whatever. But where, honestly, wherever I went around the world, people asked me about Nigel. And uh, he died one beautiful May day. We went, you know, he was happy. He was in the garden all the time. We went for a walk in the evening. Uh, And then uh, he got ill at about midnight and he was put to sleep later that day. Mm -hmm. So it was incredibly sad, but he was an old dog. It was a fast end. And now I just feel really, really good about it. We had a a good time together, Nigel and I.
0: It was a life well lived. Yeah, it was.
1: It was. It was.
0: Very nice. This is a very nice note to end on. I also just have to say that we've had another email from Sean Alpine Crabtree to say that this is not a pseudonym and he is called Sean Finley Alpine Crabtree. So wherever you are, Sean, thank you, because that's one of the most engaging names I've ever come across. And I I hope that you're a gardener and I assume you are a gardener in the fact that you're here. Um, Monty, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Um, Please, everybody, buy the books. I know lots of you already have. I hope lots more of you will. Thank you all very much for being with us and for asking lots of questions, a lot of which are about very specific things about what we should be planting in the garden. Well, you'll just have to keep tuning into Gardener's World on Friday nights, and you will hopefully one day get the answer. But um, thank you to the nation. Someone's described you earlier as being like having a dose of Xanax. I can't actually work out whether that's a compliment.
1: That's a good thing or a bad thing.
0: I'm not (laughs) sure, Monty, but maybe on that dodgy note, we have to say goodbye from Longmeadow, and thank you so much and it's great to see you again.
1: Thanks very much indeed, lovely to see you, thank you.